0: Climate Law Matters, environmental improvement at a crossroads. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Ruth Chambers, Senior Fellow at the Green Alliance, who is here to discuss the Office for Environmental Protection, COEP's most recent annual statutory report published on the 18th of January of this year. And more generally, the role and effectiveness of the Environment Act 2021 in achieving its goals in relation to the natural environment, focusing in particular on climate change. So Ruth, thank you very much for joining me today. Can you start by telling the listener about your current role?
1: Hi, Steph, and great to be here. So my current role is with an environmental think tank called Green Alliance, and I work with a fantastic team of people to monitor the implementation of the Environment Act 2021 that you've just mentioned, especially the new environmental governance system, that that set up. So last week was a real milestone for that system. And we are delighted that the OEP is starting to look very closely at government progress. Much of my role also involves talking to government and to parliament as part of our scrutiny and influencing work. And just out of
0: curiosity to kind of set your role in context, how did you end up in this role in the first place?
1: So just over six years ago, I joined Green Alliance when it was running a sector-wide coalition called Green UK, through which all of the major environmental NGOs came together to work on EU exit issues in the wake of the referendum, because so many of our environmental laws came from the EU. Brexit was both an existential threat and an opportunity for the environment. So we came together in that coalition. And I joined to work on the various kind of challenges and laws that would then pass through Parliament over the next six years. And you mentioned a few moments ago, the role that
0: you play in as the bill was progressing through Parliament. I mean, how did that work in the context
1: specifically of the Environment Bill? I guess it had maybe three distinct phases. So first of all, in sort of 2017, we identified that there would be an environmental governance gap in the UK after we left the EU. So we campaigned and persuaded the government to recognize that gap and also to agree to introduce legislation to fill it. That campaign was successful and the government agreed there was a gap. And then the bill was introduced into parliament. So that was the first part of the campaign. The next part was its very long passage through parliament. So when any bill is developed, then there's lots of opportunities to help shape it along the way. So that's what we did, working with our partners across the environment sector and with parliamentarians. And its process and progress through parliament was elongated, partly because of politics and partly because of COVID. And then the third part of that journey is once the bill becomes an act, which this one did in November 2021, it's making sure that it's really important provisions are actually taken forward and go live in a timely way and in the way that we all expected and that Parliament intended. And so in terms of the
0: OEP's report, so that report is published pursuant to section 28 of the Environment Act. And as you say, it's part of this governance framework set out under the Act. So my understanding is the report is principally concerned with looking at the progress towards improving the natural environment. In accordance with the current Environmental Improvement Plan, as well as looking at progress in respect to the various targets set under the Act. Just to assist the listener, can you explain in a bit more detail how improvement of the natural environment is addressed in the Act?
1: Yeah, so I guess in the first part of the Environment Act, there are four really important pillars and the Environmental Improvement Plan is one of those. But let's start with the targets, actually, because the Act also introduces legally binding targets on the government, and there's a requirement on the government to set targets in certain areas, and the government also has a power to set other environmental improvement targets. The second part of the environmental governance system is what you've just mentioned, the Environmental Improvement Plan. And that's a plan which must be a long-term plan, and it mustn't be shorter than 15 years, And it also must set out the steps by which the government is going to actually achieve environmental improvement. And that can't be trivial. The Act requires the plan to identify significant improvements in the natural environment. And that environmental improvement plan also has to set out steps on how those targets are going to be delivered. And it must also include interim targets to guide us all along the way. The third part of the governance system is the Office for Environmental Protection, so the new oversight body. And that's got particular responsibilities to monitor government's progress on both the targets and the Environmental Improvement Plan. And the report it published last week is its annual progress assessment of how the government is doing, both on targets and on the plan itself. And then the final and fourth pillar is something called environmental principles. So when we were a member of the EU, we were bound by five really important environmental principles. So things like the polluter must pay, for example. The Environment Act now embeds those principles in law and it places a duty on policymakers to have regard to them when they go about their work, basically. So the Environmental Improvement Plan sits within that wider context. The government must publish it, it must include steps to identify improvements, and the OEP will then look at all of that and say whether or not it thinks that progress is on track. And then the government itself has to do its own assessment and also has to respond to the OEP's report.
0: And just then bringing this back to the issue of climate
1: change mitigation and adaptation, I mean, how does that fit together? I guess there's a number of ways that climate change features within the governance framework. As you said, it's principally about improving the natural environment, but obviously the natural environment and our climate are inextricably linked as our actions to improve both the lot of, say, biodiversity and climate mitigation or adaptation. So the two goals that the government has are maybe set out in different legislation. So the Climate Change Act from 2008 sets the governance framework for climate law, but obviously there are really strong correlations between the Environment Act. So I'd call them maybe complementary frameworks and systems. Um, Another way in which climate is brought in is when the government defined environmental law within the Environment Act, because the OEP's remit really covers environmental law, then it decided to include climate law within that definition. That wasn't the case at the beginning, but following the advice of select committees and stakeholders, the government broadened that definition. And that's really important because when the OEP monitors environmental law, advises government on changes to environmental law and considers potential breaches to environmental law, all of that includes climate law. And because the Climate Change Committee doesn't have enforcement powers, but the Office for Environmental Protection does, that clarification was really really important the environmental improvement plan it contains various goals and one of those goals is about climate mitigation and adaptation and also those environmental principles i've just mentioned they apply to all policy making policy making on everything from transport to housing to climate mitigation and adaptation so i think we can see from all of that that it's quite a complex and interwoven system But climate is definitely part of the EIP and our new governance framework. It's certainly my understanding as well that there
0: is, in fact, a memorandum of understanding as between the Climate Change Committee and also the OEP to ensure that they can effectively work together. So, Ruth, returning to the
1: report, can you tell me a bit more about it? Absolutely, and I'd I'd recommend that your listeners do have a look at it. It's all available on the OEP's website, and it's accompanied by a very substantial evidence report and also information about methodology, i.e. how did the OEP come to its conclusions. But the report itself is broken into a few different sections. The headlines, the executive summary, explain where the OEP thinks government's got to. We can come back to those in a minute, and then it goes through in quite a meticulous fashion each of the goals in the environmental improvement plan. And for each one, there's a summary assessment. Um, The OEP looks at the context which that plan sits within. It considers the commitments that the government's made, the particular environmental trends on whether they're going up or down, the progress towards achieving the government's ambition, and then very importantly, opportunities where improvement might be made And there's a very helpful color coding within that where red is obviously off track, green is obviously on track, yellow is somewhere in the middle, and gray is a sort of slightly unusual color for sort of rag rating of progress. But in this case, it's really important because gray identifies areas where the OEP hasn't been able to come to a judgment. And that's usually because the evidence isn't available, either because it doesn't exist or it's not in a public form, or there's a lack of transparency. And if you have a look at basically the whole of the plan, there's an awful lot of grey in there. Thank you. I can provide a link to the
0: OP's website alongside this podcast for the listeners. In the report itself, it refers to the APEX goal, which is the goal of thriving plants and wildlife. Do you mind explaining what that means?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of goals in the Environmental Improvement Plan, and all of them are important, and they need to be pursued at the same time and in a compatible way. But the government's identified one of them as the apex goal, which all of the other activities and goals are meant to drive towards. That, as you said, is thriving plants and wildlife. And that really relates back to those environmental targets in the Environment Act. Because whilst, again, there are targets that cover four different policy areas, so waste, air quality, water and biodiversity, there is also an apex target within that set as well. And that's a short-term target. It's coming up fast, it's less than six years away now in 2030, and that's very crucial to halt the decline in biodiversity through a particular target on species abundance. So there's a lot more in the government's plan about what comprises that apex goal. But it's more or less compatible with that 2030 target to halt the decline in nature. So you
0: mentioned a few moments ago that there's lots of gray coding in the report itself because essentially the OEP wasn't able to reach judgments in relation to particular areas. Insofar as the OP was able to make judgments, what were they? What are the key findings in the report?
1: Again, there are many, but let's start with its overall assessment of where government is. And I think to even quote from the chair of the OEP, there are deeply concerning adverse environmental trends which continue. And given that, it does seem that we're at a crossroads. So the OEP says it's not too late to change tack and to make a difference and to turn around these worrying environmental trends but in order to do that, the government must speed and scale up its efforts and ensure that all of the policies and all of the actions it's planning and progressing stack up to deliver what's needed at the pace that's needed because largely government progress is off track. And it then goes through all of the different trends and goals and identifies those in a very granular manner. But yes, if you wanted one take-home message – from the OEP's report is that government is largely off track to meet its own ambitions, to meet the Environment Act targets and to meet other commitments. It makes well over 40 recommendations in the report, but there are five main recommendations. And for those of you that have been following this journey for some time, you'll see that they're the same five recommendations that the OEP made last year. In other words, we haven't moved forward that much. And all of those recommendations are about process and procedures in a way and about delivery. For example, the OEP in its first principal recommendation simply calls for the government to implement the environmental improvement plan effectively. And that needs the development of clear and concretized delivery plans with pathways that give smart targets, if you like, and a sense of who is responsible within government for delivering them with proper timescales. And that will help us all, whether we're businesses, whether we're local authorities, whether we're environmental NGOs, or indeed just members of the public, a better understanding about how we can play our part in this collective effort, because it is a massive collective effort that is needed to deliver the plan's goals, but without a better delivery framework, it's going to be very difficult for us to get there. Another main recommendation it makes is to have better interim targets, so There wasn't any consultation with any sector on the development of those interim targets in the environmental improvement plan. And there's certainly scope to improve and toughen them up. And then finally, to make sure that there's better transparency at the moment, there's not enough public knowledge about exactly how this great endeavor is going to ensue over the coming months. There's huge public appetite and an enormous will to support the government But just lifting the curtain up on some of the challenges and some of the plans, we think will help enormously. And then just delving into the section on climate change mitigation and adaptation. So, as you mentioned earlier,
0: it ties into the meaning of environmental law, but there are also our specific goals dealing with both those topics within the environmental improvement plan itself. What are the OEP's key findings on climate change mitigation first?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a chapter, as you say, on climate change mitigation and adaptation. And on mitigation, the OEP finds that there are relatively detailed delivery plans in place compared to other goal areas. So that's a positive. But it also says that emissions reduction rates will need to increase rapidly across all sectors outside of energy supply if the UK is to meet future targets. So, you know, the government can still meet net zero, but to do so, it must build on past progress by improving the scale and pace of delivery again, as well as the clarity and transparency of plans to do so. So very similar to recommendations that the Climate Change Committee and other stakeholders have made, I think.
0: Yes, it's particularly interesting in the context of Mr. Justice Holgate's judgment from 2022 and also, also the current ongoing challenge to the carbon budget delivery plan in respect of how effective those delivery plans actually are. Moving then on to the issue of climate change adaptation, what are the OEP's key
1: findings on that issue? Again, I don't think it will be a surprise to anybody because those of us who follow climate policy have long understood that adaptation is a poor relation of mitigation. And the OEP really finds just that, that most sectors don't have fully credible plans in place to assess and ensure resilience to changes in climate. There's poor progress due to a lack of urgency and inadequate implementation. And for example, during the second National Adaptation Programme, which concluded in 2023, the OEP remarks that action fell far behind on mitigation, both in terms of attention to and delivery of policy objectives. So yes, a long way to go on adaptation, I think the OEP feels.
0: Does the OEP see any particular opportunities for improvement in this
1: area? Yes, I mean, it makes, I think, three main recommendations on climate. So the first one is about the speed and scaling up of delivery of adaptation and mitigation plans. I mean, plans sound quite dull, don't they? But without them, how will we know what that sort of journey is? And again, to give business certainty and to help investment be directed to the right place and to ensure that, you know, our laws are kind of driving in that direction as well. And also the importance of interim emissions reductions are also singled out by the OEP. I think the second area it pulls out is that the government needs to clearly demonstrate how actions to deliver the environmental improvement plan, such as, for example, nature-friendly farming schemes, have delivery plans that also include steps to cope with different future climate change scenarios as well. So it's about joining the dots, isn't it, between a scheme that is incredibly important to support farm incomes, deliver natural environment goals, but also climate goals and making sure that all of those connections are made. And then the third area it makes recommendations in is in the risk reduction goals of the national adaptation programme. So to make sure that they are strengthened and that their impact is enhanced. So we briefly touched earlier on how the Environment Act governance frameworks, sits
0: alongside the Climate Governance Framework under the Climate Change Act, and also the interactions as between the OEP and the Climate Change Committee. How does this specific annual report sit alongside the Climate Change Committee's annual reports to Parliament on progress?
1: So It's a great question and as you said earlier the OEP and the Climate Change Committee have a memorandum of understanding to set respective responsibilities and guide how they work together. My understanding of the two reports is that they are entirely complementary, so they fulfil slightly different roles in the kind of ecosystem of scrutiny. And uh, they obviously give different levels of information. So the Climate Change Committee's report is much more detailed and granular on climate. Of course, we'd expect that. Whereas the OEP's is perhaps more rounded and covers a much wider range of areas. Um, They are really important. They should be kind of sister reports and give parliamentarians and us all in the public domain different kinds of information about what's going on and how well government is doing. That's my understanding. Obviously, this is the first time that we'll have seen the two reports in existence at the same time. So I'm sure there'll be scope to discuss whether or not that they could be improved in terms of how they read across to each other. And actually, it brings me to another interesting point, which is the goals of
0: transparency under both legal regimes, so goals of transparency and goals of accountability.
1: What happens to the OEP's report now? Well, it's a gift to us all. So we all need to go away and properly read and digest it, think about how we can factor it into our own work. And certainly for Parliament, for example, there is a very strong interest in what the OEP has said. So even just in the last week since the report was published, there's been two debates in the House of Lords about its findings. The APPG for the Environment hosted a, a question and answer discussion with the chair of the OEP, about the report that was attended by a wide cross-party group. So Parliament itself will use the report and factor it in to its own scrutiny of government, because ultimately it's Parliament that will hold the government to account for the implementation of laws that it itself passed. So it'll inform the scrutiny landscape. But the next sort of official stage, if you like, will be when the government responds to the OEP's report, and that will be In around about July from this year so we won't have to wait too long for that and we very much hope that it will be a different report in tone and in detail to the report that the government put out the week before last which responded to the OEP's 2022 report so there is an unfortunate sinking issue here whereas one week you get the government responding to a 2022 report the next week you get the OEP's 2023 report and at some point that sinking will need to be corrected, and that probably needs a small tweak to the timings in the act. But that report that the government published, it was described as scant and disappointing by the chair of the OEP. And I think we would very much agree with that. It didn't really set out any detail on delivery, for example, and it referred us all to the government's upcoming response in July. So I think that report has a lot of expectation riding on it. But it's not just about expectation, because if that report doesn't become or doesn't have associated with it, those clear delivery pathways that we've been calling for for a long time and that the OEP has now scrupulously called for as well, then I think it will fail the expectation that we all have for the government in terms of moving forward.
0: Just taking a step back,
1: it's now been
0: three years, I think, since the Environment Act or bill, as it then was, was introduced into Parliament for its first reading. And bringing it all together, I mean, what do you consider the key objectives of the Act to be?
1: I mean, it was such an enormous piece of legislation and it grew throughout its passage as well. So that's a difficult question to answer in a short podcast, but maybe I would pick out three of those key objectives. One is what we've mainly been talking about today, which is making sure that our environmental governance is robust, capable of holding the government to account, and also of providing us as citizens with the opportunity to see that um, in live play, if you like, and also to feed in our views. So given that this is the sort of first full report on the EIP and that the environmental principles duty I mentioned earlier only went live in November, it still feels relatively early in this new cycle to judge how it's all working together. But that will remain a really important and salient question for us over the coming months and years, I think. So that's number one. The second is the wide range of powers the Act gives to the government. So as most listeners will know, Acts of Parliament can give government a duty, which means it has to do something, and then a power, which means it can do something if it wants to. And a lot of the Act is about giving governments powers, so optional mechanisms, if you like, to deliver environmental improvement across a really wide range of areas. So there are chapters on air quality, water quality, resources and waste, conservation covenants, and lots more beside. The test will be how far and how often the government reaches for those powers, because there are really important powers that are yet to be kind of accessed. So that's maybe another thing that we'll be keeping an eye on. And then thirdly, there are really important, very specific measures in the Act, which even though you know we're now in the third year since we had the Act, they're still yet to be implemented. And while government shouldn't rush into things hastily, actually, we think it's high time that these things were enacted. So a good example of one of those is in one of the schedules in the Act, the government agreed after independent reports from the Global Resource Initiative and lots of stakeholder pressure from across the globe to introduce a new scheme, a new due diligence scheme on what's called forest risk commodities. And this is to ensure that then we as consumers do our sort of weekly shop. We're not inadvertently buying products that are helping fuel illegal deforestation in other parts of the planet. Now, that is still yet to go live. And yet, when the Environment Bill was debated in Parliament, everyone, including the government, recognised the urgent need to bring this onto the statute book. So where is it? At the COP, just before Christmas, the new Environment Secretary, Steve Barclay, said it was coming soon, and it was very welcome to hear his words there. But in order to bring this to life, as it were, the government now needs to publish further regulations in parliament, and that's what we're waiting for. And a government minister told the House of Lords the week before last that he hoped that those regulations would be available this spring. Well, we all know that a government spring can extend usual seasonalities, so we really would encourage ministers to get on with this and to bring those into parliament quickly.
0: I think that's also particularly so in the context of progress that has been made on that particular issue on the continent. In terms of then concluding this podcast, what do you think needs to happen
1: next? So we're at an interesting time, aren't we? Because we are in election year, we're going to have a new government. None of us know who or what that government will be or what their policies are. So there is an element of uncertainty, but we would like the environmental ambitions within this environmental improvement plan to endure beyond that political uncertainty. So I think we're looking for strong commitments from all of the main political parties. And as they start to publish their manifestos, we will be judging each of them on that basis. So that's the first thing. Are we gonna see you know, renewed and heightened political ambition on the environment? Because that's what the public want, you know, polls show, that strong and ambitious action on environment and climate continues to be a high priority for voters across the country. The second thing is really what the OEP is calling for, which is for the government to double down on delivery. And whilst there may not be many months left of this government or parliament, certainly for the next parliament, if it lasts around about five years, that will take us right up to the door of that first legally binding target on nature so the next parliament must really not get distracted as this government has done on occasion by politics and ensure that it doubles down on delivery and that those goals of the eip become the apex goals for government not just the environment department and that the oep's recommendations are really taken to heart you know the oep exists to help government yes to hold it to account but also to shine a light on its activity and to show pathways to success and progress. And that's what we all want, really, the government to succeed. Nobody wants the government to fail in these targets or these plans. So focusing on delivery in the way that the OEP is recommended will, we think, be essential. And a third thing is making sure that the whole of the UK delivers. We've been talking about the Environment Act and the Environmental Improvement Plan, and that particular plan only applies to England. Parts of the Environment Act and the governance framework also apply to Northern Ireland, but progress is stalled because of the politics. So actually getting a government back in Northern Ireland is really integral to unlocking the environmental promise that the Environment Act had for Northern Ireland, which sadly has not been realised. And we see pollution events like Loch Ness over the summer just showing us how dire the situation is. In Scotland, the separate legislation, which is progressing well, and we could have another conversation about that. I'm sure. And meanwhile, in Wales, progress is unfortunately the slowest of all of those four countries. We don't have a legal underpinning, we don't have an equivalent to the OEP, and we don't have an environmental improvement plan. But progress is coming, um, we hope, later this month with a statement, a much anticipated statement from the climate minister on the 30th of January. So making sure that the whole of the UK is working in tandem the environment doesn't respect political boundaries or government administrations. It straddles them, whether it's air pollution or water catchments. And then the final thing for the government, I I think, is to remember that there is a huge and willing team of people outside government, whether it's in civil society, nature organizations who own and operate massive tracts of land, whether it's businesses, the farming community, the legal community, and, and indeed just the general public whose lives will be impacted more so by the climate and nature crises as they worsen. We want to help the government, but we can only do that if we understand where and how we can play our part. So invite us in, treat us as friends and allies in this really important journey that we're going to be on together. Thank you very much for your time, Ruth. That was incredibly informative and insightful. So thank you.